Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome guys, my name is Zach Twomley and you're listening to When Diplomacy Fails. This is the ninth episode of The Long War, so if you haven't listened to the other episodes yet, you might not know what's going on. If you just like your history right there whenever you want it, then stay tuned. If this is your first time listening, yes, my name is Zach. I am a historian, somewhat qualified at least, to be telling you about such... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Events as Louis XIV and the last siege of Vienna and everything else in between. We've been really enjoying this story. You guys have been giving me some great feedback on it all. And yes, I should add, if you want some more When Diplomacy Fails in your life, you'd be hard-pressed to find it anywhere else than on the extra feed for the Patreon page. So go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and you'll be able to find right now a Jan Sobieski biography which is running concurrently. I think that's the right use of that word. I've always wanted to use it. It's running concurrently to the Long War. Jan Sobieski was of course the guy who arrived just in time to save everyone's bum at the last siege of Vienna in 1683. But before that he did an awful lot to make him a very worthwhile king in his own right. So make sure to check his story out if you're interested. That again is When Diplomacy Fails' Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, 
Or, of course, you could go to our website, wdfpodcast.com. Should also add, if you want the episodes like these, of the Long War, etc., a week before everyone else gets them, and free from ads and free from me talking to you about Patreon in times like these, then Patreon is very good for that as well. For a fiver a month, you could get extra content, like the Jan Sobieski stuff, but for $2 a month, you could be getting the access feed, which, yes, gets you access to, hence the name, the week early feed with ad-free episodes and love me on Patreon, free episodes, etc., etc. But if you're just a person who likes to listen to this podcast, you don't want to send me any money, there's ways and means to support as well. The simplest, of course, is to just tell someone about this podcast. I'm not exactly sure what you're doing right now. Maybe you're running, maybe you're ironing maybe you're walking the dog if so say hello to your woofer on my behalf make sure you don't burn those clothes and i hope you stretched beforehand but either way do try and tell someone about this podcast because i really appreciate it and word of mouth is still one of the best ways to get the word about this podcast out there without any further ado then i'm really looking forward to getting into this yes indeed i am so let's do it episode nine of the long war Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the ninth installment of our examination of the Long War. Last time we finally got around to proper whopper diplomacy. We brought you guys through the concerns of Holy Roman Emperor Leopold I and his German peers. Louis XIV, it transpired, was pretty much the be-all and end-all of their diplomacy, and within Leopold's very court, a rift was in place between those that wished he would simply give Louis what he wanted and turn against the Turks, the Catholic group, and those that wished he would ignore the Ottomans altogether and focus on the French. These were the Spanish faction. Not only were the Hofburg Palace's different visitors aiming to acquire different things from the Emperor then, but even among his own government division reigned. Hermann of Baden, the president of the War Council and the man charged with engineering Habsburg diplomacy in the relevant theatres, was an out-and-out Francophobe, but by late 1681 he was facing severe challenges from other German princes who simply would not fall in line with the Habsburg line for fear of French action. The Rhine princes and electors were the most spooked of all, as we saw, since they resided within striking distance of Versailles, yet it was Louis' aggressive expansion into Strasbourg in September 1681 that proved a watershed moment. Even if unwilling to completely change their old policies, the shocking image of French encroachment into imperial territory, and Louis' brazen attitude towards the empire's sovereignty as a whole, sent a stark message. Coupled with the accession of new leaders in Saxony and Bavaria around the same time, it certainly seemed possible that a level of stability could be acquired in the West, though the cost had yet to be determined. By late spring 1682, the warnings and whispers were becoming louder now that the Ottoman Empire was really up to something. Yet it would be some time before Leopold and his advisors really took the time to listen. Let's bring you to this scene then, as we continue our story of the diplomacy across Europe, and just how interconnected affairs truly were on the continent in the early 1680s. There was no trace of pride in him, except in his appearance. He was born with an air of majesty which impressed everyone so deeply that one could not approach him without being struck by fear and respect, but when you wished to speak to him, 
His face became more relaxed and he had the art of putting you completely at ease with him. In his replies he said so many obliging things that if he was granting you a favour, you felt that he had given it twice and if he refused it, it was impossible to complain. Since the beginnings of monarchy, you will never find a king who was more human. James Fitzjames, the Duke of Berwick on the persona and majesty of Louis XIV of France. Albert Caprara could find little grounds for optimism. For much of his life, he had been a moderately successful academic, teaching moral philosophy at the University of Bologna, and he had enjoyed a level of patronage from Leopold himself at times, while undertaking certain debates and engaging in certain worthy pieces of research. His work had enabled him to reproduce what one historian called a charming version of Aesop's fables which were essentially a collection of wise, witty, and ironic clichés and life lessons handed down, so it was said, from the ancient Greek slave Aesop. Yet still, Caprara could find little grounds for optimism, and it wasn't because he was jealous of his more dashing cousin, the Habsburg general Aeneas Caprara. No, Albert was feeling especially gloomy in late August 1681 because he had recently been informed of his old patron's decision. After receiving a particularly alarming letter from his envoy in Constantinople, Leopold had judged it wise to send another envoy to back him up. Somewhat arbitrarily, Leopold and his council had settled on Albert Caprara, a man of letters and philosophy as a suitable individual for representing Vienna in the hostile Ottoman court. Was Leopold attempting to cash in on a favour? Did he believe Caprara would excel in the role? Or did he simply think so little of the assignment that he believed it didn't matter too much who he sent? Albert Caprara could not be sure, but either way he was destined to move out in February 1682, and from what he knew about the nature of politics in the Turks' lands, he knew that there was little reason to be optimistic. Embarking for what he was sure would be a difficult and thankless assignment, Caprara departed Vienna in late February 1682 and made his way due south for the long and arduous journey to the Ottoman capital. On his way he came across several disconcerting scenes. The entire region around the eastern flow of the Danube seemed to be up in arms, and Imre Tokoli, that Hungarian nobleman at the helm of all the Habsburg's Hungarian problems, appeared to be gearing up for a new campaign in the Sultan's name. It was, mercifully, he thought, not up to him to solve the Hungarian problems, if indeed they could even be solved. Yet, the further south he travelled, the more uneasy Caprara became. The Ottomans did not look like an empire preparing to renew a peace treaty, as Leopold had apparently assumed. Instead, it seemed as though the Sultan's several vassals were massing in anticipation of something greater than a mere season of annual raiding. By the time his gloomy journey had ended and Caprara arrived in Constantinople in early June 1682, he had convinced himself that the emperor would be sending new orders for him to follow and that the old instructions of 
vaguely finding a means to renew the old agreement, surely he cannot be expected to stand. In his numerous letters home, Kuprar had emphasised the military preparedness of the Turks. Unless serious and bountiful concessions were offered up, he reasoned, there could be no hope of a proper and lasting peace, the likes of which Leopold and his deeply distracted advisers seemed to expect. But Caprara would have to wait for these new orders in vain. As the philosophy professor awaited news from home, on the 23rd of June 1682, the Ottomans got down to business. What exactly was Albert Caprara and his master, the Holy Roman Emperor, prepared to give to ensure lasting peace, the Turks asked. After a few minutes, they produced a series of violations of the previous treaty, which the Habsburgs had apparently perpetuated. This list, the Ottomans said, more than justified a war. Vienna had constructed new fortresses along the Danube. They had secretly conspired to turn the Hungarian nobility against Constantinople, and they had schemed in the meantime alongside other European powers and the Pope to construct a holy league against the Sultan. Compensation by Leopold for these breaches was the only means by which a new treaty could be constructed, but time was of the essence. Albert Caprara felt pretty disturbed at this, but he did attempt to hold to some of his old sticking points, standing his ground on the Hungarian issue, and reasoning that the Ottomans had done their own level best to stir up Hungary against Vienna. By recognising Imre Tokali as the prince or ruler of Upper Hungary, the Sultan was violating the treaty he claimed had first been violated by the Emperor. To this, the Sultan's agents calmly and somewhat ominously informed Caprara that Tokali had come to the Sultan for aid due to the perilous and fractured circumstances in Hungary which the Holy Roman Emperor had created. Furthermore, the Ottoman agents asked, how could the Sultan refuse a request for help or protection from one so noble and well-meaning in Imre Tokali? The message was clear. On the 6th of July, Caprara met again with the Ottomans, who insisted on a series of strong fortresses being surrendered to their sphere of influence in return for a peace. Finally, the Turks insisted on Gior as the final price for such a peace. Gior had been historically, symbolically, and strategically vital for many decades, and it served as a southern Habsburg fortified base along the northern portion of the River Rab. This bastion of defence was a critical bulwark against Turkish threats, and it had been heavily fortified over the last few years since it had first been captured at the turn of the 17th century. The struggles for the place were legendary, and the Sultan's agents were well aware that it would have been impossible for Leopold to simply hand it over for these reasons. Located just over 100 miles southeast of Vienna, it also protected the strategically important river crossings over the River Rab, and by extension, over the Danube once the Rab was crossed, so surrendering it would have put the Habsburg defences in an impossible situation. Impossible was a word bandied about rarely in the language of diplomacy, but Caprara was as firm as he dared to be on the issue. At the same time, he understood that the very decision of the Turks to demand Gior when they knew full well of its significance meant that war was likely already decided upon. This was the gloomy conclusion he sent home to Vienna, or rather it was the conclusion he tried to send. No courier could be sent, according to the Turkish authorities, since one couldn't be found. And so it wasn't until mid-September 1682 that Vienna was informed of the near certainty of war with the Ottomans yet again. Caprara could not guarantee that his master would in fact listen, 
but he hoped that the infamously Francophobe court around Leopold could be persuaded of the need to turn their attention to the East rather than the West. Albert Caprara was no fool. He knew that his counsel on the Ottoman situation would be inconvenient and ill-desired right at the time when the King of France seemed to be mobilising for a war of his own, but Caprara had to do his best. It remained to be seen now whether, hundreds of miles away, Leopold would heed the latest warning. Before this warning was received in September 1682, there was plenty of time in the months beforehand for Leopold and his cabal of Francophobes to keep their eyes on the Rhine. As 1682 began, there did seem to be cause for them to be optimistic. For starters, the Dutch had been actively seeking agreements to tie up several princely states in their own association, and this appeared to be palatable enough to those that joined. What really made this new association attractive to several of those northern German princes, though, was the fact that real muscle was backing it up this time. William III, the stadtholder of the Netherlands, had gradually come to see King Charles XI of Sweden as his greatest ally in the region, particularly with Denmark moving into the French camp. As Denmark joined Brandenburg and seemed to threaten Sweden from both sides, Charles XI's own kingdom, desperate for some gains after the deflating experiences in the previous war, sought out a regional ally, which came to have an impact first on that region of the continent, and then across the Holy Roman Empire as a whole. Both Charles XI of Sweden and William III agreed to uphold the Treaties of Westphalia from 1648 and those from Nijmegen in 1678-79. It was a loose set of principles to agree upon, and essentially translated as desiring compensation for those that had had lands taken from them and wanting to maintain, above all, the European status quo. After Strasbourg, in September 1681, William III had gained enough leverage over the Dutch Peace Party to begin diplomatically campaigning against Louis XIV once more. In addition, there was the deliberate slight lobbied directly at William when French forces occupied William's ancestral Principality of Orange along the River Rhone to the southeast of France. This occupation was in no way justified by the reunions, it was simply a case of Louis being unable to help himself when a chance to snub a rival came about. As soon as the Dutch stadtholder began to act, additional pieces began to fall into place. At The Hague, where these negotiations mostly took place, the Habsburg ambassador was invited in to take part. Herman of Baden instructed the ambassador to agree to all points for the sake of getting the Dutch and Swedes on side, as well as leverage they could muster against any reluctant German princes. Swedish pressure in the northern German sphere was believed to be especially useful as was Dutch economic pressure if required. William was eager while he had the opportunity to push for as much German involvement as possible. Above all, he did not want to be faced with the same situation as before, where the Dutch had been forced to shoulder much of the war effort as the Habsburgs and other German princes fell over themselves in disarray. If Europe was to arm against Louis in a grand coalition, then it had to be done properly, and so the idea came for the series of circles in the empire to mobilise as well. Much reliance would be placed, not necessarily on Leopold himself, but the individual players. Saxony and Bavaria would be relied upon, alongside their related circles and smaller neighbours, to hold the line along the Rhine in the extreme north and south of the Rhine. 
The Dutch and the Swedes would aid in the north where possible, using their navies as well, and Leopold would aid in the south along with some Spanish distractions. Spanish involvement threatened to delay the proceedings though because they demanded Dutch guarantees for their lands in Flanders before agreeing to join an alliance which would likely provoke their hostile neighbour. Eventually these sticking points were agreed upon and the issue of joining the association was put to the Regensburg Diet in early summer. This act of proposing the whole arrangement to the Regensburg Diet was risky because it meant that it would send a clear message to the French and the deliberations which had been going on mostly in private would now be public. Deliberations proved predictably slow in this apparently final hurdle, mainly because they were now public and most of the German princes were more afraid because of this, but a level of panic seemed to also hurry the proceedings along. No one could be sure how far Louis' ambitions actually extended, and if he planned to target the likes of Cologne or other Rhine territories for annexation next. The more bridgeheads along that river that French arms gained, the more imperiled every German sense of independence would become. In June 1682, at Leopold's hunting lodge in the forests just south of Vienna, a document was signed between some minor representatives of the different German circles and Leopold's immediate inner circle. In short, it was more of a solid commitment to aim at gathering more support for the sake of war against France than it was an actual declaration of war or a definite statement of the Habsburgs' readiness for that war. Bavaria, Saxony, the Dutch and the Swedes were still to be officially courted as the negotiations in the Regensburg Diet dragged on and the final details hadn't yet been hammered out there. Leopold's hunting lodge essentially served as a commitment and statement to the delayers, and of course to Louis XIV, but it didn't do much tangible good for the Habsburg's strategic interests. While Leopold fully expected the Regensburg Diet to arrive at a satisfying and sensible decision and for the association and alliance between the relevant powers to be hammered out, he sought himself to move some pieces around the board and take a few incredible risks. So certain were the Spanish faction of the unlikelihood, either of war in the east, or of the Hungarian problem getting further out of hand, that Leopold determined in midsummer to leave his eastern flank dangerously undermanned. Leopold promised 20,000 men and reinforcements from Bohemia to defend the Rhine along its south and central regions, while he proclaimed his willingness to rely on the patriotic states in the north to hold the line there. Almost immediately did men begin filtering towards the west, at the very moment that Albert Caprara was seeking desperately to send his letter of warning about the immediate danger of war with the Ottomans. Incredibly naive though Leopold and his ministers may seem to us now, there was such a pervasive ignorance of the situation in the east, right down to the belief, almost until the end, that the perennial Hungarian rebel, Imre Tokoli, could be flipped to their side, that the Habsburgs continued to make calculations based on what they wanted the Eastern Front with the Ottomans to be rather than what it actually was. There was also a general lack of information available, as we saw by Caprara's inability to send his letter at all for some time. Of further note was Louis XIV's efforts to stall for time and bluff his way into further gains in return for a lasting peace. If Spain would only give him Luxembourg, Louis insisted, he would give Freiburg, that bastion across the Rhine to the south, back to the Imperials. Louis knew that such offers would have been tempting for Leopold, though his ministers continued to take a surprisingly hard line against France during this time. 
In fact, it seems as though they used up all of their reserves of defiance in the west and had little left for the east. This saga continued as the Dutch got wind of the offers and informed Madrid that if Louis threatened the Spanish Netherlands with force, William would lead 8,000 men into the region to defend it. At the same time, William had become concerned at the volatility of northern Germany, and the Baltic in particular. It seemed as though his will-he-won't-he uncle, Frederick William of Brandenburg, along with the Danes and the Archbishop of Münster, were poised to attack Sweden's overstretched domains at any moment. Rumours abounded that the French agents were working in Warsaw to entice the King of Poland, Jan Sobieski, to make war on Brandenburg, so that the triumphant and fearsome Polish king could seize back Ducal Prussia for his own dynastic interests. The interconnected nature of European diplomacy by the early 1680s pointed towards an eruption of a further European war directly after the previous one, except this time on an even wider scale than before. It would only be in autumn 1682 that Jan Sobieski put aside his real and very genuine plans for an invasion of Prussia and replaced them with the more traditional policy, especially considering the personality of Jan Sobieski, when he switched to an alliance against the Ottomans. Yet William III did not know whether the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth or the Baltic would factor in to the coming conflict. All he knew in late summer 1682 was that the German princes around the Rhine remained in fear of Louis, even as they continued to build up their armed forces. Thanks to Louis XIV's threats, it couldn't be foreseen if, when a war began, these Germans would side with the Dutch or against the French, and so it was vital that William ensure his republic's security before acting too hastily. As July 1682 became August, William and the other would-be allies in the vague association came to hear of Imre Tokoli's repeated successes in Hungary as he drove the Habsburgs out of their portion of the increasingly unruly country. With the Habsburgs apparently on the back foot and having no answer for this Turkish-sponsored rebel, not only did it appear certain that the Ottomans would seek to take advantage, but it also became a question of prime importance of whether to appease Louis or not. Surely Leopold could not afford to keep fobbing Louis off, and surely the more he did so, the more he threatened the Holy Roman Empire with ruin from a war on two fronts. Yet not even Louis XIV would have schemed to attack the Habsburgs in an alliance with the Ottomans. Such a sight would have been most in politique for the most Christian king of France. Instead, Louis waged a different kind of war, a war of threats and bluff, which proved far more effective and less costly in getting him what he wanted. Over the spring of 1682, Louis had slowly removed his soldiers from the outskirts of Luxembourg because, as he explained it, Christendom was imperiled by the Ottoman invasion soon to come. And I know what you're thinking. If the Habsburgs didn't know until Caprara's letter was received in September that the Ottomans were about to attack, how on earth did Louis XIV of France know as early as spring 1682 that they were, indeed, going to attack? Well, the answer to this question revolved around the well-placed French ambassador in Constantinople. The French had long enjoyed, by virtue of their strategic importance to the Turks, a privileged position in the Sultan's diplomatic battlefield, and a battlefield it certainly was. The Ottoman threat was too important to allow it to slacken for French strategic interests. It was critical that the Turk remained strong and fearsome in the mind of the Habsburgs. 
Arguably, this was no longer the case by 1682, because the Habsburgs seemed more interested in facing down Paris than Constantinople, but such a state of affairs could change, the French envoy explained, for everyone's benefit as well, if the Ottomans would continue to wage their campaign of disruption in Hungary. Imre Tokoli had proved an invaluable boon to the Ottomans' fortunes. Once Kara Mustafa appreciated his use, it was quickly apparent that the Grand Vizier was factoring that Hungarian potentate into his wider plans for an ambitious invasion of the Habsburg lands. Yet, by the early spring of 1682, the French remained concerned that it might be Krakow rather than Vienna that was the Ottomans' intended target. To right this wrong, diplomatic pressure and hints were dropped that if the Turks did appear outside of Krakow, the French would have to, as per Louis' agreement with Sobieski, signed in 1679, to get involved, and perhaps even declare war on the Ottomans. However, if the Ottomans arrived outside Vienna, well, that would be a very different story. Historians have long debated Louis' strikingly self-interested offers to the Sultan, with some even going so far as to argue that he desired the collapse of the Habsburgs in the east, and even the capture of Vienna, so that he could be elected Holy Roman Emperor, and then kick the Turk out himself. John A. Lynn makes the point that using the Ottomans to distract the Habsburgs was a natural facet of French policy, and it had been since King Francis I had made a deal with Sultan Suleiman in the late 1520s. John A. Lynn also adds that, It is to be noted that the success of this scenario depended not on French actions, but on those of the Ottoman Turks, for if they had taken Vienna and continued to drive further into Central Europe, Louis would have been obliged to intervene militarily, plot or no plot. We could thus ask, then, what were the actual aims of French diplomacy with regards to the Sultan? In other words, if the apparent end goal of the French whispers in Kara Mustafa's ear about not intervening in the event of the Ottoman invasion was, on paper at least, Ottoman success, then surely the whole policy was one giant contradiction if such success would have warranted French intervention. Again, it is important not to see Louis' efforts to entice the Ottomans against the Habsburgs as proof of his desire for the triumph of the Ottomans, as historians that tend to demonise Louis XIV might see it. We should remember that Louis' true end goal, much like Leopold's at this point, was the securing of his kingdom's borders along the Rhine. The best way to achieve this was to act once the other parties, like the Holy Roman Emperor, was distracted, and the best way to ensure that they were distracted was to formulate and even sponsor a large threat from the opposite end of Europe to where Louis wished to operate. It was not a betrayal of his avowed Christian piety. Instead, it was a validation of the theory that religion was not always everything in 17th century foreign policy. Louis' obsession remained ensuring the security of his realm. We cannot know for sure how he would have felt about the sacking of Vienna, but considering his past behaviour, we can judge with a reasonable degree of certainty that what he wanted above all was the Habsburgs to be distracted, not decimated. John Stoy, perhaps, summarised it best when he wrote that, The King of France never rated the Ottoman armament highly, but he did consider it menacing enough to force Leopold to come to terms with the King of France. The Ottoman Empire was an insidious weapon at the Sun King's disposal, but in his state of constant competition with the Habsburgs, it was no less serious a threat than, by contrast, 
what Leopold and his advisers had tried to orchestrate against France along the Rhine for the last few months. Louis was not out of touch with the diplomatic currents of the day. He knew full well that as surely as the Holy Roman Emperor, his German allies, the Dutch and the Spanish, schemed against him, he would have to scheme against them. If you still think Louis a disgusting traitor, consider the fact that Elizabeth I very loudly and consistently courted the aid of the Ottoman Empire against Spain during the very difficult period of the 1580s. Elizabeth's primary aim was not to see Catholic Spain fall to an Islamic invasion. Instead, it was to distract and occupy Philip II's attentions and resources so that these would not be used against England. Elizabeth's desire for security were certainly different in appearance, and Louis XIV was, of course, in a far stronger position than the Queen of England during the heady days of the Armada. Yet, if we are to judge Louis XIV's actions and those of his ancestors as anything other than simply Diplomacy 101, or, perhaps more accurately, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, then we have to tar every ruler who acted similarly with the same brush, and there were a lot of rulers who acted similarly. Louis XIV unquestionably had ambitions to expand and consolidate his domains, generally at the expense of his smaller neighbours, but in the context of a continent that he saw arming against him, and the perceived Ottoman weakness displayed for all to see during the previous war in 1664, it stands to reason that Louis's diplomacy was business as usual, rather than a heretical deal with the proverbial devil. The problem, as ever, with the Southern King was how he presented his policy to the rest of the continent. As we'll see in the near future, sometimes Louis's desire for a peaceful security paradoxically made him appear as the only actor capable or willing to shatter that peace. Full of contradictions, the only real way to analyse his character and his aims fairly is to place them in the context of the era in which they were conducted. Louis would never have acted in tandem with the Ottomans against Vienna, or promised French military aid in support of the Sultan in any other way. His aim was to wrest as much benefit as he could from the convenient, strategic fact that the Habsburg's arch-nemesis resided only a few hundred miles to their east. With the French ambassador's position clearly given, Karim Mustafa appreciated a few facts. First, that Louis would not wage war against either the Sultan in the name of the Habsburgs or against the Habsburgs in the Sultan's name. Second, that only a campaign against the Habsburgs would do, as an alliance with the Poles, would necessarily rouse the French to action if the Ottomans attacked the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Third, there was the fact that Louis was himself far more interested in taking advantage of the distraction caused by the entire Ottoman venture than he was in actively intervening in the east on one side or another. To make a point to the Ottomans, Louis had withdrawn his forces from Luxembourg by late spring 1682 to give the powers in Europe time to consider his offers. To make a point to these same Western powers, Louis then proclaimed that his momentary restraint with respect to taking what was rightfully his would expire at the end of November 1682. If the Habsburgs had not negotiated with France and granted its ravenous king the territories he desired by that point, mostly with respect to swapping Freiburg for Luxembourg, then it seemed as though Louis would resume his proxy war along the Rhine. While he puffed out his chest, Louis also did his diplomatic best, in John Stoy's words, to persuade Kara Mustafa to move into Hungary with his large and gathering army to up the ante and pressure on the Habsburgs to comply. 
By this point, of course, Albert Caprara's stern warning had finally reached Leopold's court. Leopold now understood that the Ottomans did in fact intend to break the truce before it officially expired. And yet in spite of this, in spite of the fractured nature of the agreements along the Rhine, in spite of the abject failure of his diplomats from late 1679 to summer 1682, and in spite of the apparently limitless ability of Imre Tokali to bring ruin upon his Hungarian possessions, the Holy Roman Emperor would not budge. Threatened from the east and the west, apparently fresh out of diplomatic solutions or concrete allies, Leopold instead made the decision in late September 1682 to pursue arguably the most obvious ally against the Ottoman Empire he could call upon. Who better to combat the militarism and aggression of the Sultan than the peoples who had been waging their own set of wars against him for so many years? What other king in Europe would better understand Leopold's position than the king of the Poles? It was time, Leopold believed, to negotiate with the king of Poland, Jan Sobieski. Next time, we'll see how these two allies threw together everything they had in a spirited yet desperate defence against a common enemy. Until then, history friends, my name is Zach. This has been When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 